0: Thank you for choosing to listen to the Hope Rock Church at Lake Travis podcast. For more resources and information on our church or our team, please go to www.hoperockchurch.com or find us on Facebook. Amen. Morning, Hope Rock. Nice to see everybody here this morning. If you are new, thank you for coming and visiting us today. Uh, We love it when people choose to worship with us, and uh, we'd love for you to join us for a cup of coffee. Um, This morning, I just want to remind us of a couple of things before we move on. Tomorrow morning is our first uh, Ladies, Key woman Bible Study. Uh, It's called She Battles. There's a nice slide there. It's a fierce slide. Uh, And it starts tomorrow morning, 6.30. If you need any more information on it and you are a lady and you want to attend, uh, Mark, you need to stop trying to sign up for it now, please. Okay? It's only for Ladies. I know you're trying to find out how they got such a powerful logo, but just stop doing that. Anyway, uh, please chat to Kat after the meeting. Uh, I know Kelly and Kelsey will be leading it. You know, they'll be in the next meeting. or Kelly's, I think, leading the kids as well. But just chat to Kat, and she'll be able to give you more information. If you are new as well, and you have been here for a while, want to get to know us a little bit more, understand what makes us church tick, get to know our hearts a little bit better, what we believe, what we stand for, on the 23rd of October, we'll be hosting another DNA. We do these once a month, every third Saturday of the month. Uh, it'll be between 9 a.m. and 12 p.m. It sounds like a really long time, but actually, it's not really that long because we have breakfast. We Sit down, we talk, it's very casual, and childcare will be provided. That's the latest we finish. Uh, We'd normally finish a lot earlier than that, but it is a cool way for you to get to know us a little bit more and for us to get to know you. So if you haven't done one before, please register online. You can find that event detail on the website. Uh, And then on the 19th of November, we've got another trip coming up for Roatan. So Roatan is where God has called us to, to invest into in terms of the nations right now, uh, and probably for a very long time. Uh, And so if you're interested in coming on this trip, please feel free to, you know, go and register. There are a couple of spots left, not many, but you can go and register. But even if you're not going to go to Roatan or you can't make it to Roatan over that weekend, it's a five-day trip. What we are looking for as well is to create some really special Christmas gifts for the kids. And so what we want to do is if, you, if you've got access to gifts that you want to give or you want to be able to donate towards the hygiene packs that we want to bring down with us, please contact Kerry West. She'll be able to tell you what we need, what kind of gifts to get, what not to get. Uh, and she's going to basically put these packages together along with other people that are volunteering. So if you don't know Kerry, uh, you can come chat to me afterwards. I'll give you her number as well. Her number is up there, but it's not going to be there forever. Uh, it's going to disappear now. So just chat to me and I'll connect you with Kerry and she'll be able to give you all the information. And if you want to come... Please feel free to go and register. Great, that's it. There's no more announcements or reminders or anything today. We can get right into the word. If you missed last week's Sunday, or if you don't know, we are doing a series called Kingdom Values. Uh, Kingdom Values are the values that we really need to hold on to as a church, as individuals, so that we can make sure we don't get taken off track by the world. Um, but we are in a series within a series. I know it sounds very complicated, but we are celebrating Reformation Month this month. Um, It's a series where basically over the next five weeks, we're going to be unpacking various aspects of this event that happened a really long time ago. Uh, If you don't know anything about it, I'll give you a really, really short synopsis. On October the 31st, 1517, Martin Luther walked up to the doors of the Wittenberg Cathedral and he nailed the 95-point thesis, the thesis that was really challenging the church of the day, the institution of the church, not the people of the church, the institution of the church. And the reason he did that was because the church had moved further and further away from looking like the church in Matthew 16, which is a victorious, advancing, and powerful church, and more and more like a corrupt, worldly church. And so it was that moment called the Reformation that we're celebrating this month. Martin Luther said, enough is enough. I'm not going to let this go, and I can't stand for it. And so what we want to do over the next five weeks, starting with today, is we're going to unpack the five key values that came out of this Reformation. Those are called the solas. Sola means alone, only. There are five of them. The first one, sola scriptura, means the word of God alone is our final authority in our lives. Sola gratia, it's by grace alone that we are saved. By faith, the next one, sola fide, that we are saved. Faith in the gospel, faith in this word, faith in the message of salvation. Solus Christus means that it's Jesus alone who is the head of the church and the head of our lives. And the last one, sola deo gloria, which means God only deserves the glory. Nobody else, not a man, not an institution, not a church, not Hope Rock Church, not any church. Jesus Christ deserves the glory. And so we'll be unpacking those solos over the next five weeks. This morning, as I said, we're going to start with Sola Scriptura. So let's pray. Father, thank you for just the opportunity and the privilege that we have to be able to read your word for ourselves. We take it for granted today because everybody in this church has a Bible. Whether it's in their hands or whether it's on their phone, we have access to your word. It wasn't always like that, Lord. And so we thank you for the mighty men and women of God who went before us, who pioneered this freedom, Lord, that we can celebrate today. I pray, Lord, that as we study, you know, this key value, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would quicken the words that I preach and that you would be with us as we reveal more and more of your truth in Scripture. I pray that you would open our eyes to see what it is that you want to say. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the most lasting or some might even argue one of the greatest discoveries of the Reformation was the fact that Martin Luther Luther discovered that the words and the keys to salvation were contained in a book a book that was not just any book, a book that wasn't produced necessarily by man alone, but a book that was inspired and divinely authored, a book called the Bible. As I said, every one of us in this room has access to a Bible. So if you don't have one, it's not because you don't have access to it. It's maybe because you need to get one. And I would encourage you to get one, whether that's on an app or a physical Bible. I have many different types of Bibles. But what really drove Martin Luther was because salvation was contained in this book. And if you think about it, every single one of us in this room today has come to faith because somebody read this book, right? Somebody read this book, and they were faithful with the words in it. And so they either preached to you, spoke to you, encouraged you, and the Holy Spirit drew you in, for sure. But it was through the Word of God that salvation came to us. And so Martin Luther said, it's not fair and it's not right that man or women, in, any, in fact, anybody that was alive, even children, should not have access to their own version of the Bible, to their own Bibles. And so adamant was he about that fact that he was prepared to die for it. That's what sola scriptura is all about. It's about putting a Bible in every man and woman's hands so that the fight for truth can belong to them. You see, if you take this out of people's hands, then, well, you're at the sort of mercy of what I tell you, the Bible says. But when you put a Bible in your own hand then you can fight and contend for the truth contained in it yourself because you are armed with the gospel. And so the historical context of this soul is a little bit, it's important. And what we'll try and do over the next five weeks is look at the historical implications of each of these different values and then apply it to our our lives today. But there was an Italian guy, Sylvester Mazzolini, who was uh, a theologian, a Catholic theologian, close friends with the Pope. And Martin Luther's arch enemy, he said this, he said, he who does not accept the doctrine of the church of Rome and the pontiff of Rome as, infallible, as an infallible rule of faith from which the holy scriptures too draw their strength and authority is a heretic. We say heretic in South Africa, but I don't want to get anybody upset. Heretic. It's interesting what this man said. This man was basically saying is that scripture is not actually the culmination of divine authorship. It's not the Holy Spirit speaking to man and inspiring man to write it. The, Holy, the word of God is actually the product of the Pope. The Pope has divinely authored this word, which means the Pope can divinely change the word, which means he can add to it, he can take away from it. In fact, the Pope was given God-like powers in that day. This belief is what ultimately led so many extra-biblical texts and extra-biblical teachings to be added to the word of God. So many rituals and routines and liturgies were added to God's word. Because a man had authority now to be able to change the very word of God. Luther knew this was an issue. He knew that this wasn't right. It took Luther four years to be able to read the Bible for himself after he became a monk. And once he read it, he realized, actually, there's a whole lot of stuff in my faith that's actually not true. Some of the extra biblical teaching that Luther stood up against in that day contextually speaking, is the Immaculate Conception of Mary. I know this is a big one, and and, and I have a history, just so we know. I grew up Catholic, and so I'm quite familiar with some of these teachings. But the Immaculate Conception of Mary, which Luther stood against, was this teaching that Mary was protected from original sin. That Mary was, in fact, born sinless, like Jesus. So that there were two sinless people on this earth, both Jesus Christ and Mary, his mother, were sinless individuals. The challenge and the problem with that is you cannot find that in Scripture. There is nothing in the Bible that says anything like that. The second thing that Martin Luther was quite vehemently opposed to was the assumption of Mary. The assumption of Mary, or the assumption of the Virgin, which is still celebrated today in some cultures, is the belief that Mary, after she died, was ascended into heaven in bodily form. Like Jesus, after the cross, he spent three days in the grave, he came out, spent time teaching and showing himself to his disciples and then was resurrected. Mary, according to this teaching, The same thing happened to her. Again, the challenge we have with that is that there is nowhere in Scripture that ever defends anything like this. In fact, Mary is not mentioned after Acts chapter 1 and her death is never mentioned in the Bible. And so what happened is these two teachings in particular were man's personal opinion and injection into Scripture. And what happened was because the church was in such strong authoritarian control is man's opinions became infallible truth. That infallible truth led people to worship somebody other than God. The third thing that Martin Luther was really frustrated about was the sale of indulgences by the church for the forgiveness of people's sins. This was an extremely popular teaching because if we're honest, we as human beings, all of us here today, are relatively insecure people. Now you might say, well, actually, no, I'm very secure, Mark. I know who I am. It's true. But believe me, there is always a moment in our lives where we question whether God loves us or not. That's one of the key strategies of the enemy, to try and distract us from the things that God wants us to do. The longer he can keep us distracted in that place of uncertainty, the better. And so if the church offers me a way to prove, or at least to buy God's favor, what a blessing. You see, the sale of indulgence is taught that human merits, specifically and especially financial merits, could somehow help you in the afterlife. There was this temporal punishment that needed to happen to you after you died. It's called purgatory. That's where all your carnal sins would be dealt with by God. It was severe. If you ever read Dante's Inferno, that's what it was like according to tradition. There would be these rings of hell that you would go through literally until eventually you were cleansed from your sin and you could enter into heaven. By paying, your indulgences meant that you would limit how long you would spend in purgatory. You've paid enough. You wouldn't have to spend any time there at all. In fact, what was also crazy, and this just blows my mind, is that you could even pay indulgences on behalf of people that were already in purgatory. So you could buy people out of hell, literally, with your money. Money's always good, yeah? You can pay and we'll get them out, no problem. The challenge with this, again, apart from the fact that it's not biblical, is that this told people that the key to having a relationship with God had less to do with what Jesus did on the cross and more to do with what you have in your pocket. I know you might think, well, that was... Medieval times, we don't do that anymore. We do that all the time. Sometimes we get convinced by people that if we pay a whole lot of money, God will love us more. It still happens today in different forms. Jesus and what he did on the cross is enough. It's at this point that you might be thinking, but surely people at that sort of stage in their lives would have seen the error in their teachings. They would have realized that something was wrong. Surely somebody would have stood up a long time ago and said, no more and no further. But well, we have to remember about the people of the day, some things about them in spe- in specifically. You see, in Luther's day, people didn't read the Bible. They couldn't read the Bible. They didn't have access to the Bible. There wasn't a Bible in every single person's hands. Generally, there was a Bible in most, well, in every cathedral. Some churches had a Bible. And if they did, it was locked away. The Bible was literally sealed. And it was written in a language that nobody spoke. It was written in the Latin Vulgate. So in, the German people in Luther's day couldn't read the Bible for themselves. They were told that whatever the church leaders had said was always right. And so they just had to believe it. They were brought up following traditions blindly by their parents and their parents and their parents' parents. And so they just continued in that vein. They were told that the Bible, even if they could read it, was too difficult to understand. It wasn't meant for normal human beings. It was meant for the upper class, the the elite, the, the high echelons of society. Those who had achieved certain status with God probably spent enough money. And they were taught that obeying the church was far more important than obeying scriptures. Now you think, well, that's pretty medieval. and no wonder it was called the Dark Ages, right? But the fact is, we have challenges on scripture today all the time. People will tell you today that the Bible is just a collection of writings from some people that are pretty awesome, but just human beings. This Bible is not divine, in other words. Some people will say that the Bible is just one source of information, but there are many others. This book is just one of many versions of different truths that can get you to the same place. Or we'll be told that the Bible contains mistakes, that it's errant. I mean, how can it be not errant if it's over 2,000 years old? New Testament, 4,000. If you add the Old Testament into it, how is it possible that it's existed all this time without having fundamental flaws in it? We'll get to those issues a little bit later. The last one, and my personal favorite, is this Bible is so old that it no longer applies to us today. Because somehow human hearts have changed over 2,000 years. We've become better versions of humanity. I don't know if you know, that. <laughs> that's just a joke, right? Because we're all the same. We have been the same. This Bible is as relevant to us today as it was 2,000 years ago. 4,000 years ago. My point in saying all of this is that we can't be critical on the people that lived in Luther's day. We can't be critical on them without being critical on, our, on ourselves. Because our own immature, inadequate, and warped view of Scripture often today leads us to a place where we really don't want to go. In some cases, I think that the places we're at today are far worse than the people were during the Reformation. They had an excuse. We don't have an excuse. We look outside here today and we look into the world and we see this new version of Christianity that's been birthed. It's called progressive Christianity. It's a Christianity that teaches that there is no no more sin in this world. That sin doesn't exist. That God loves everyone. And so everybody's going to heaven. It's a Christianity that's starting to teach that every single faith leads us to the same God. It's a Christianity that's confused the gospel with social initiatives. That's not the gospel, friends. The fact is, when we start to reinterpret scripture, when we start to place anything above scripture, what happens is we become the divine authority and God no longer is, which is pretty ironic because that's exactly what Martin Luther and the reformers stood against. And so before we judge the people of 504 years ago too harshly. I think we need to look at our own hearts. And so let me ask us a question. What is the final authority in our lives today? What is it? Is it the government? Are they the final authority? Is it a political party or a political agenda? Is it our favorite preacher or teacher? Is it our significant other, our wives, our family, our children? For some people, our children are our divine authority, especially my daughter. She's fierce. <laughs> and it's her birthday so Happy birthday, Rebekah. Or is it God's word? Jesus says to us in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, he said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that precedes the mouth of God. What Jesus was saying to us then and what he's telling us today is that if anything else is in a position above God's word, we are in trouble because only God's word can bring us life. But here's the thing, before we can make sure that this word and this Bible becomes the final authority in our lives, we have to settle some things about it. We have to know some things about scripture. And so this morning, I've got six points that I want us just to discuss. And these aren't all of the points. To be honest, we could spend the entire, uh, the next 10, 20, 50 years of my life just preaching on God's word. And so this is not exhaustive, but just six points that I want to raise for us this morning. The first thing that we need to know about God's word is that the scriptures are for everyone. This word was written for every single human being. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to read, a lot, of our, a lot of our time will be spent here this morning, from verse 14. This is Paul speaking to his spiritual son, Timothy. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it. Paul's saying that there is something to be said about where you learn things from. Some things we ingest all the time that we shouldn't be ingesting. Because it's coming from places that we shouldn't be trusting. But there are some things that we need to take to heart. This is one of those sources of information. When we read this, we can take it to heart. This is the gospel truth, literally. And then he says, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. It's interesting that Paul is reminding Timothy who at this point, when Paul's writing this letter to him, is probably about 16 or 17 years old. I would say, I mean, I can't tell you definitively, but I reckon he was... A pretty, young, a pretty old teenager, 16, 17 years old. And guess what? He was an elder of a church. At this stage in his life, he was leading the church in Ephesus. And so Timothy is already young. He's not a theologian. He's not old Mazzolini from Italy, 15, I mean, in 15, whatever that year was. He is a young guy, a young man, my son's age. And Paul's speaking to him about scripture. And he says, how from childhood you've been acquainted with these sacred writings. So it wasn't just at 16 years old that Timothy knew these words. It was from childhood. See, Timothy's mother, Eunice, was a faithful follower of the scripture. She taught him. His grandmother, Lois, taught him even more. And of course, he had Paul and the rest of the apostles who deposited things in him. But from childhood, he was brought up under the word. And we today say that we can't understand scripture. It's too difficult. I mean, I've said it. I just struggle to read it. Look, I mean, reading Deuteronomy is pretty tough. It requires a lot of attention. Or the lists of kings, or the lists of people, or the genealogies, or how many people were in each army. I mean, it gets quite frustrating. But don't say that Scripture is not understandable. It's completely understandable. It's even understandable to children. See, the church in Luther's day said to people that the Bible was too complicated for you to understand. When we say that to ourselves today, we are promulgating a lie that has existed for centuries that the devil told it. The Bible is not too complicated for us to understand. Do you know that there's a saying that says, knowledge is power, right? If I can convince you that you don't have the ability to understand something, then who are you? You are a fool, right? Because clearly I've got to interpret it for you. And when I give you the power to tell me what the truth is, then I no longer have the power myself. We see it in the world, right? We see it. Governments do it all the time. You know, we come from a country where that was the main sort of agenda for 40 years. They told people, no, you can't learn anything because we know everything. Knowledge is power, friends. The devil wants you to believe you can't read the word. You can read the word. David says this in Psalm 19. He says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. David didn't say making wise the theologian, the doctor, the person with a master's degree, the person that can read or write. You know, some people have had the word of God deposited in them and they can't even read. There's a story of a preacher in Kenya God came and visited him in the middle of the night and gave him the entire book of John, the gospel of John. He could speak it verbatim. He's never read, can't even speak English, but he could speak the gospel. God's word comes to us in a form that we don't even understand. I haven't even been, let me just tell you this, I can, I can speak on, on this issue with authority. I have not been to seminary. I struggled to finish school. You're looking at a drug addict, literally, that like was, I mean, I was voted most likely to fail in school and they were right. For a time. My point being, if I can understand God's word, anybody can understand God's word. Jesus, seven times across the gospels, he asks people the question, have you not read? He's speaking to the common man, not to the Pharisees, not to the Sadducees. He's speaking to the people. He says, have you not read? In other words, you've read this stuff. You know this stuff. The scriptures are accessible to you. And it's, it's an assumption that everybody can read it. The Bible is written by God in such a way that if you're willing to follow God and you want to honor Him, He will reveal the truth to you. No matter how complicated the text might seem. And that tells me you don't have to be a Greek or Hebrew theologian scholar to be able to read God's Word. You don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to be a pastor, a preacher, a teacher. You can be my daughter, seven years old, reading God's Word. It tells me that if you have a heart and you follow God, The Holy Spirit will always reveal what he needs to reveal in his scriptures to you. How many of you have read the word of God and you've read it one day and it said something and you read the same passage another day and it said something else? Happens to me all the time. Is it because God's word is changing? No, the Holy Spirit is revealing different aspects of this word. This word is deep. This word, someone used to tell me was written in four dimensions. And it's so true though because it's not just words on a piece of paper. This is life. The second thing we need to know about scripture is that it's powerful. Paul continues, he says to Timothy at the second half of verse 15, he said to him, how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings? Then he says, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It's interesting what Paul is saying. You see, sometimes we can bring to reading the Bible and reading the text our own uh, selfish desires. Sometimes we read the Bible because we want to be, you know, more well-versed with text than the person sitting next to us. Believe me, I know I'm a pastor. I feel this pressure all the time. I go to pastor's lunches and these guys are like all over the place with the word. I'm like, man, i got to read. Lord, just, I'm like, Lord, give me something, bro. Okay. In the beginning was God and the word was with God and the word was God. Hallelujah. But for real, sometimes we read the text because we want to become more intelligent. We read it because we want to fill our heads with knowledge. Or we read the Bible because we want to be blessed by it. You know, everyone, I don't know about you, but I used to play a scripture roulette, right? Lord, what do you want to say to me today? Hallelujah. And boom. Okay. And oh, no, I don't like that one. <laughs> Let's do this again. Let's pull the trigger. Ah, that's better. Yes. Hallelujah. Blessed. Okay, man. Blessed. Luck like word. I'm blessed. <sighs> the point I'm trying to make is that scripture will definitely fill your mind with knowledge. And it will make you more intelligent. And yes, you will receive many blessings through reading God's word. But we don't read God's word for the blessings. We don't read God's word for the knowledge. We read God's word for revelation. Paul says this in Ephesians 1. He says in verse 17 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. We don't read God's word for theory. We read God's word for relationship relationship with the God of the universe. We read God's word so we can start to see Jesus clearly. We start to see the Father in action. We start to see the gospel from Genesis to Revelation. We read God's word, not so that we can win arguments, but so that we can have hope. And what is the hope that we have? The eternal hope that one day we will be seated in, with Christ in heavenly places. In fact, we are victorious today. We say in the song, victory, we are victorious today. The hope that we have is not a blessing. It's not the ability to win an argument. It's that we have salvation, friends. And it's not just for us. The hope is for everyone else. That is the most powerful book in the world. A book that can give you hope. Not just a, a fleeting hope. I mean, you can go to Barnes and Noble and find shelves of books that will give you hope. They're all called self-help books. But let me tell you, you, read them, and the keys are great for one day. And then all of a sudden, oh my gosh, the secret's over. It's not a secret anymore because everybody knows it now. How can it be a secret? And that means, you know, it's not really a secret. And was it wasn't ever a secret? This Bible will give you hope forever, and that's powerful. The third thing we need to know about Scripture is that it has authority. Paul says to Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God, verse 16, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Paul uses this term, breathed out by God. It's an interesting term. Uh, it's mentioned many other places in scripture. But One of the ones I want to read you this morning is Psalm 33, verse 6. It says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Paul was using creation language when he was speaking to Timothy. And what he's reminding Timothy is the same God that spoke the universe into existence. The heavens, the earth, everything in it, the animals, us, Adam and Eve, you name it. He's the same God who breathed this word into existence. Now you might say, but hang on, didn't this book get written by people? I mean, it's got their names in it. It says Isaiah, Esther. Chronicles is a terrible name. I'm joking, it's not a name. (laughs) But wasn't this book written by man? The fact is it was written by man. You are 100% correct. And these weren't robots, just to be clear. It wasn't like all of a sudden, you know, Isaiah went into... Or we did go into a trance, and so we went into visions. But it wasn't like God just sort of just plugged into this person with an Ethernet cable and just downloaded everything, and then they, just, they were just scribbling with their eyes white and rolled back, and you know, that's what they were doing. No, these people knew what they were writing. The authors of the biblical text knew what they were writing. They were writing to specific situations in specific days. But you know what ended up happening? Is everything God wanted them to say, they said. And you know how we know that? Because when we read the Word... It's as relevant to us today as it was to them 2,000 years ago. That's how we know it. I mean, you try to read a book that's 2,000 years old and see how that applies to you, besides the Word of God. It doesn't. This text will live forever. Then you might say, but hang on. Okay, well, that's great. I know it's fine, God spoke to people, but how do we know that this Bible was actually true? I mean, aren't we just reading translations? Isn't this just a version of somebody else's text? The truth is we are just reading various translations that have been translated for thousands of years, to be clear. And it's not just that. These were hand-copied translations. Copied literally by scribes, by hand. There was one manuscript, they looked at it, they copied the same manuscript by hand. And you think to yourself, well, isn't that like uh, open to a whole lot of opportunities for failure? And the truth is it is. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, we all know how how we are, and my, I mean, especially me, I don't pay attention to what was yes there, now becomes a no later on, and I can't remember, but let's just write this anyway. So you'd think that this text might be full of errors, but the truth is, after thousands of years, the errors that you do find from all the manuscripts and all the translations are insignificant. They're punctuation errors. They don't go to the meaning of the text. And so the Bible is authoritative. Let me give you an example. When I was studying for this preach and just studying on God's word, I looked at how manuscripts are are verified and how they're validated. And I'm talking about any manuscript, ancient manuscripts, so ancient writings. There's two main things that people look at. One, how many manuscripts exist? Okay, so how many pieces of that particular work are out there? And then of those pieces that are out there, what is the closest manuscript to the date of the events that are being recorded? In other words, if I'm talking about the day I shot, you know, the biggest deer in the world and put it on my war, How close to that moment am I filling in the details? Is it one year, two years? Is it a thousand years? And you know how that matters because if it's a thousand years later, man, you know, I mean, I can't even remember what I ate for breakfast yesterday. I'm going to give you all the details about the hunt that I went on yesterday. I mean, a thousand years ago, right? And so what's interesting is Aristotle, we all know him, he's a philosopher. He's written a lot of crazy stuff that we take for gospel. A lot of philosophy, it's in universities today. People study it as if it's the truth. And that is the truth according to most people. There are a 1,000 manuscripts of Aristotle's work. The closest manuscript to the events that Aristotle recorded is 1,200 years. Plato is the same. 1,200 years from the events that Plato recorded to the closest manuscript is 1,200 years. That's the difference in time. And there's only 210 of those. 210 made manuscripts about Plato. Again, Plato, if you had to ask the man on the street, is Plato a real person? They would go, for sure. We all know it. Caesar. He wrote about the Gaelic Wars and the accounts of what happened. It's taught as history in our schools today. It's a historical fact. It's not a myth, it's not a legend, it's a historical fact. You know that that comes from 251 manuscripts. And those 251 manuscripts, the closest to the wars, is 900 years old. I'm saying this to you because those things are gospel truth in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of education, in the eyes of the systems of the world, those things are true. Yet, this word, the New Testament alone, Has sixty-six thousand manuscripts. The closest manuscript to the date of what it was being what was being recorded is thirty years. But this is a fallacy. It's a myth. How can you believe it? It's not true. Friends, the Bible is an authoritative piece of work, and it's not just authoritative. It is inspired. It will change your life when you preach from this word, when you talk from this word, when you speak from this word, when you recount the words from this word, you are speaking words of power. This is not Plato or Aristotle or Caesar. This is God. The fourth thing we need to know about Scripture is that it's enough. Paul says to Timothy in verse 17, you know, he says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's good for correction, for reproof, and for training in righteousness. Then he says to him this, he says that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If you just look at your neighbor next to you mark if it's a wife you definitely want to say this to her that she's absolutely complete in fact you can tell her that you complete her she completes you (laughs) i'm joking the truth is god's word completes us but you know what? we've been forced to believe a lie a lie that we are not enough and that this word isn't enough i mean honestly let's let's be honest about it you see today people want to convince us all the time that we need something else Yeah, it's great to go to church, but I need this. And we're always trying to fill our lives with things. We're always trying to fill up and top up what God can't do in our lives because we've been led to believe that God isn't enough. In Luther's day, you needed the indulgences of the church. Why? Because the priest had to forgive you because the cross wasn't enough. And it wasn't just in Luther's day. Let's go back to the New Testament. In the New Testament, go and read the letter to the Galatians. What you'll realize is believers were teaching other believers that in order for them to be enough, they had to become Jewish. The cross wasn't enough. You have to become more Jewish. You have to celebrate the Jewish festivals. You have to become circumcised. You have to, you have to, you have to. And all of a sudden, our faith becomes God plus whatever it is. That's not the Bible that I read. It's not the gospel that we read. Today, you've got to go to the biggest church. You've got to be a part of the right click. You've got to be connected to the right preacher. You've got to go to seminary. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to. At some point in time in your life, maybe if you're lucky, you'll get to the point where God loves you just the way you are. Jesus plus nothing is what the scripture teaches. What Jesus did on the cross is final, paid in full. There is nothing that can be added to this word, nothing to be taken away from it. When you read this word, it completes you. Not that love story stuff, i complete you, you complete me. No, the word of God completes us. Because it deposits in us what's always been missing, and that's God. Gosh, I'm out of time. I don't even know where I am now. Scripture is equipping us with everything we will ever need. It will complete you. If you feel that there is something missing from your life today, you won't find it in a self-help book. You won't find it in the, in, the, in the hallways of bonds and Noble. You certainly won't find it at the bottom of a bottle. You will not find it in the world. You will find it in this word. Because Jesus is the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Here it is. Last point. No, it's not last point. Fifth point. Fifth thing we need to know about scripture is that it cannot lie. Hebrews 6 says to us that, When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. Is that TV dead? Wow. See, that's how strong the word is. It just blew up the whole TV. Friends, God can't lie. And if we now have at least covered, and and again, I I, I welcome you, in fact, I encourage you to go and study the the inerrancy and the authority of scripture yourself. Go and read a book. If you want to read a really good book, it's um, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, a great book. Written by a guy called Nabil Quresh. Or Lee Strobel's, The Case for Christ. Go read that book too if you want to know about the the authority of Scripture and the sufficiency of Scripture and how inerrant it actually is. But let's just assume that we all agree that this is inerrant. And the Bible then tells us that Jesus or God cannot lie. Then you know what what that means? It means the words that are contained in this book are absolute truth. It means because God cannot lie, what is contained in here, the principles and the things that God is teaching us are absolute truths. I'm saying this to you because we live in a world devoid of absolute truth. In fact, it is offensive for you to say that you believe in anything authoritatively or absolutely. Because you know what? Nothing actually exists anymore. We're all living in this weird space. You can say what you want. I can say what I want. Your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. No, it's not your truth or my truth. It's this truth. This is the only absolute truth in existence. It's God's word. I'm saying that again because in this world of moral relativism, relativism, We are called as Christians not to operate like the world. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. We are called to be a people of absolute truth. What is that truth? It's God's truth. And so stand up for God's truth. Do not back down. When the world is pushing against you, push back in love. That's the difference. Don't push and make noise and scream and shout. Push back in love and say, you know what? My God says, and he's the God that cannot lie, and I can prove that he's alive. This is what he says. And so this is the truth, and I love you, and I'm telling you this because I love you. Last point. Mark, you can come up. Scripture is life-giving. Jesus said to, his, his, said to those who believed him in John chapter 8, verse 31, he said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You know, if you've got issues in your marriage, you'll find the answers here. If you've got issues with your children, you'll find the answers here. If you've got issues on a particular sin that you're dealing with, you'll find the answers here. There is no issue in all of existence that you will not find the answers for in this book. It's not going to tell you what stocks to buy today, that's for sure. But it will tell you that if you seek first the kingdom, and you make God the centre and the priority of your life, then all these things will be added to you. The Bible is sufficient. We don't have to add to it, we don't have to take away from it. There is no modern revelation today that will ever be on par with Scripture. If somebody tells you that God spoke to them and told them something that is not in this Word, please run away very fast. There is no modern revelation that is, that is ever going to be on the same level as Scripture. So don't buy into it. What that also tells me, the fact that the Word gives us life, is that everything that God wants us to do with our lives is contained in this book. It has been finalized. And so if I ever ask you to do something that's not in here add to your faith, make it a little bit more spicy, do this, you know, I think God wants us to do this particular thing. Don't do it. You know, the second coming of Christ is what we're waiting for. Now, I don't know when that will be. It could be tomorrow, for all I know. It could be 10,000 years from now. What I do know for a fact is that before Christ comes back, He's coming back for a mature church. We've spoken about this before. You know, interestingly, after the day of Pentecost happens Peter preaches on Solomon's portico and he says this in Acts chapter 3 verse 19 he says repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you Jesus that he may send him again this is the second coming we're talking about here whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Jesus will not come back until all things have been restored. He's coming back for a spotless bride, not a child. Over the years, through every reformation, every renewal, every refreshing, every moment in time, what you have seen is greater parts of truth being restored to the church. In the reformation, we've got the five solas. Thank you, Martin Luther and the rest of the reformers for that. There was truth restored. See, the prophets always said that truth would be restored. The Messiah would come and he would fix everything. Not a political system, but our hearts. And so the Reformation gave us the solace. After that, what happened? The Wesleyan revival. uh, George Whitfield, John Wesley and his brother, forget his name, the other Wesley, realized that the Great Commission wasn't just a suggestion, it was a commandment. And so what they said is we need to go preach from town to town and from village to village. Go and make disciples of all nations and so during the Wesleyan revival the Great Commission was restored during the Azusa Street revival not too long ago through William Seymour God restored the fact that the Holy Spirit is powerful active that there are gifts of the Spirit the baptism of the Spirit is a real thing and it empowers us for the works of God I'm asking us a question this morning not is Scripture the final authority in our lives because it should be but what is God going to do through us? Because I can tell you, whatever God wants to restore through this generation and through this church cannot start unless this is the foundation of which we we launch. Thank you for listening to the Hope Rock Church at Lake Travis podcast. We are a church that is passionate about knowing Christ and making Him known in our city, the nation, and the ends of the earth. For more information on who we are, please go to www.hoperockchurch.com or find us on Facebook.